Happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. Mahatma Gandhi Greetings, everybody. CJ here. Welcome to episode 216 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is going to be the introductory episode of a type of episode I'm going to do periodically that I'm calling fun-sized DHP episodes, in reference, of course, to those little tiny candy bars that you get on Halloween. You know the type, the ones that are about one to one and a half inches long? Less than half the size of that king-size monstrosity you often eat. So this concept was inspired by my Bacon's Rebellion episode, which was, of course, the segment I did for that anthology episode of History on Fire a little while ago. And when I republished just my segment, which I think was around 25, 30 minutes, give or take, as a little DHP episode a la carte on my own feed, I got a fair amount of positive feedback on it and several people asking if I might do some shorter episodes like that in the future. So that's what I'm going to be doing every now and then. What I have in mind for these fun-sized DHP episodes that I will do every now and then is episodes in which I'll shoot for a length of maybe 20 to 40, 45 at most minutes, so definitely under an hour, in which I'll do things like perhaps telling a historical story or anecdote that I think can be adequately covered in that amount of time without losing too much super interesting and or super important detail. Now, honestly, probably most of these sorts of topics will be smaller as topics than Bacon's Rebellion, which was actually very difficult for me to adequately cover in the amount of time that I did. I mean, I think I pulled it off, but it was really, really hard. And trying to crop the story of Bacon's Rebellion down to the size that it was actually ended up taking a lot of time and work because I had to keep whittling down my notes and figuring what details to leave out and what details I could summarize more concisely, etc. Other things I have in mind for these sorts of episodes will be things like examining an interesting primary source document, which of course I'm going to be doing in this episode as well as things like explaining a particular concept or theory. Another sort of episode I have in mind for some of these fun-sized DHP episodes is going to be giving a brief overview of an important and probably in these cases lesser-known historical figure, basically like many versions of DHP heroes and villains. Now, don't worry. If you like the big, long, deep dive episodes, I'm still going to keep doing those too, because some of those are actually some of my most popular episodes. And it's interesting, I'll occasionally hear from somebody who is actually complaining that I made an episode that was three or four hours. To which my responses are basically as follows. Number one, if you don't like it, don't listen to it. There are a zillion other podcasts out there for you to listen to, if for some reason you have a problem with what I do. Or, if you like my show generally, but don't like the four-hour episodes, don't listen to those ones. I would also say to those people, it's a freaking podcast, which, guess what, means you can pause it and come back to it whenever you want to. There's no rule 
that says you have to listen to a four-hour podcast all the way through. You can listen to it in as small of doses as you want to. And my last objection to people who actively complain about long episodes when I put them out is the numbers don't lie. The long episodes actually are some of my most popular episodes of all time. You know, things like some of the three and four hour episodes I did in the Civil War, or some of the equally long episodes I've done in the Woodrow Wilson series. Those are hugely popular, both in terms of download statistics and in terms of people giving me feedback through social media, email, etc. So I'm not going to stop doing long episodes. But I am going to start mixing in a little bit of shorter episodes in between. So for this first official fun size DHP episode, it's going to be on one of my favorite things written by Thomas Jefferson which is one of his lesser-known pieces. It's actually, of all things, a piece of legislation. So this is a very, very rare case in which I have a lot of affection for a piece of legislation in any sense, let alone for the actual text of it. This piece of legislation I'm going to be talking about here was first written by Thomas Jefferson all the way back in 1777, so just one year after he wrote, of course, with input from the rest of the committee, the Declaration of Independence. Though this piece of legislation I'll be dissecting here was not actually passed into law in Virginia until nine years later, in 1786. And this piece of legislation is, of course, the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. Now, the general public zombie masses mostly don't even know what the hell this is. But people who know at least some decent amount of American history probably have some idea of what this is. They've probably heard of it and have a vague notion of what it did. Not only may they have heard of this thing, they may even know that it had a major influence on the religious clauses in the First Amendment, as well as some of the subsequent court rulings regarding separation of church and state. Some people may also know that this bill influenced some of the other American states at the time that had state churches to disestablish them in the years immediately following American independence. But that said, even people who know that sort of stuff seem to me to often have not actually read the text of the bill. So I'm going to do that here, as well as, of course, providing some analysis and commentary. And just a brief definition, when you hear the term established church back in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, that doesn't just mean a church that somebody established in the sense of someone founded a church. It has a particular legal political meaning, which is a state-connected church, a church that a particular government authority endorses and gives generally some amount of tax funding and which also typically gets some sorts of privileges and things that other churches do not enjoy. Now, places that have an established church do not always necessarily ban other churches. Though they might, right? In England for quite a long time, the English government banned and persecuted the Catholic religion, for example. But even in more relatively liberal places, such as the North American colonies, in which in nine out of the 13 original states at the time of independence, there were established churches. In those places, dissenting churches, meaning 
churches other than whatever the established church was, generally were allowed to exist and operate and people were allowed to attend. But they were disadvantaged relative to whatever the established church was, because the established church would still get tax money even from people who didn't attend it, and they would sometimes get various other privileges and advantages as well. So that's what an established church means in this context. And so when someone says disestablishing the church, they don't mean getting rid of the church or banning it or the church disbanding itself or something like this. They simply mean severing the ties between a church that had been uh, tied to and supported by the state in some way. So just removing that state connection and state support and putting all churches on an even footing. So just a little bit more about the background and context of this bill. Like I said, it was drafted first by Thomas Jefferson back in 1777 and was officially introduced in the Virginia legislature two years later, but it stalled for many years. But it was eventually pushed through, largely spearheaded by James Madison, who also was a big believer in religious freedom and separating church and state. And the reason Madison picked this thing up and pushed it through the legislature was to counter a bill then being pushed by Patrick Henry. Now, I could be slightly off on a few of the details here, but basically my understanding is that the Anglican Church in Virginia, and perhaps in some of the other states where it had been the established church prior to the Revolution, had already either converted or at the very least begun converting from the Church of England to the Episcopal or Episcopalian Church, which is basically the Anglican Church Americanized by the severance of the ties to England itself. And then over time, it evolves to be a little bit different still. But basically, it's the Americanized version of the Church of England. And my understanding of Patrick Henry's bill, to which Madison began pushing Jefferson's bill as an alternative, is that Patrick Henry's bill basically was going to create kind of like a halfway house to full separation of church and state and religious freedom, inequality between different religions. Patrick Henry's bill was going to set up a system in which basically everyone in Virginia would have to be at least nominally a member of a Christian church. Now, they would be able to choose exactly which Christian denomination they wanted to be a member of, and then they would have to pay some amount of tax money to that church. and. Some of that money would be used for religious instruction by that church. So, in a way, it's kind of like the equivalent of a voucher system for schools, right? Where you're increasing the degree of choice for students and parents in terms of what school to go to, but you're not giving them a completely wide open range of choices to do whatever they want. They're still forced to pay some amount of tax money that goes into funding this thing. And then they have to choose from essentially a government-approved list, which in the case of Virginia would be one of the Christian churches recognized by the state of Virginia. So it wouldn't have to be Episcopalian. One could choose presumably Methodist or Baptist or what have you. But presumably the choices wouldn't be wide open. Now, I'm not a super expert on all the nitty-gritty details of Patrick Henry's bill, so I don't know if there were any limitations like, for example... It wouldn't shock me greatly to find out that perhaps one couldn't choose to be a Catholic, or perhaps one couldn't choose to be, I don't know, a Quaker or something also out of the mainstream in an English colony. I've not actually read the full text of Patrick Henry's bill, but I've read summaries of it by scholars who have studied it. 
and it did specify the Christian religion in the bill, so... For the small number of Jews then in Virginia, they didn't have the option to fund their synagogue through their tax money, and for if there were any random little pockets of Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims, of which I doubt there were many, if any, or for those who were simply non-believers or whatever, deists or something, or even, heaven forbid, if there was an early Taoist in Virginia back then, which I highly doubt, but if there were. Basically, under Patrick Henry's bill, they would still have to choose a Christian denomination to affiliate with, and that then their little tax money for this project would go to. So, in contrast, Jefferson's bill, now being pushed by Madison, was going to go much further, in fact, was going to go basically all the way to separating church and state and instituting full-bore religious freedom and equality between different religions. So it's like the difference between having the government run a voucher system for school versus the government completely cutting all ties to school and not taking anybody's money and basically saying, hey, do what you want with your kids, your money, etc. Choose your own adventure from a completely blank slate. Now, as you'll see when I read the text of the bill, if you've never read it before, Jefferson didn't just write up a simple sentence or two saying something like, we hereby disestablish Virginia State Church and replace it with religious liberty and equality, or something short like that. No, instead, he went on a two-page, super-eloquent rant, nominally directed at state churches, but that also has implications going far beyond just the realm of religious thought and belief, and which potentially strikes a strong blow at all attempts at policing people's thoughts and speech. Some of the implications of which I think Jefferson probably grasped at the time he wrote this, and others of which I don't think he possibly could have, but which are quite relevant to us today. So what I'm going to do is read once all the way through the bill without stopping, and then I'll go back through and hit on and emphasize and elaborate some of my thoughts on some particular passages. So here we go. The Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom of 1786. An Act for Establishing Religious Freedom. Whereas Almighty God hath created the mind free, that all attempts to influence it by temporal punishments or burdens, or by civil incapacitations, tend only to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness, and therefore are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion, who, being Lord, both of body and mind, yet chose not to propagate it by coercions on either, as was in his almighty power to do. That the impious presumption of legislators and rulers, civil as well as ecclesiastical, who, being themselves but fallible and uninspired men, have assumed dominion over the faith of others, setting up their own opinions and modes of thinking as the only true and infallible, and as such endeavoring to impose them on others, hath established and maintained false religions over the greatest part of the world and through all time that to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves is sinful and tyrannical, that even the forcing of him to support this or that teacher 
of his own religious persuasion is depriving him of the comfortable liberty of giving his contributions to the particular pastor whose morals he would make his pattern and whose powers he feels most persuasive to righteousness and is withdrawing from the ministry those temporary rewards which, proceeding from an approbation of their personal conduct, are an additional incitement to earnest and unremitting labors for the instruction of mankind. That our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions any more than our opinions in physics or geometry. That therefore, the prescribing of any citizen as unworthy the public confidence by laying upon him an incapacity of being called to offices of trust and emolument, unless he profess or renounce this or that religious opinion, is depriving him injuriously of those privileges and advantages to which, in common with his fellow citizens, he has a natural right. That it tends only to corrupt the principles of that very religion it is meant to encourage, by bribing with a monopoly of worldly honors and emoluments those who will externally profess and conform to it. That though indeed these are criminal who do not withstand such temptation, yet neither are those innocent who lay the bait in their way. That to suffer the civil magistrate to intrude his powers into the field of opinion and to restrain the profession or propagation of principles on supposition of their ill tendency is a dangerous fallacy which at once destroys all religious liberty because he being, of course, the judge of that tendency will make his opinions the rule of judgment and approve or condemn the sentiments of others only as they shall square with or differ from his own. That it is time enough for the rightful purposes of civil government for its officers to interfere when principles break out into overt acts against peace and good order. And finally, that truth is great and will prevail if left to herself, that she is the proper and sufficient antagonist to error and has nothing to fear from the conflict unless by human interposition, disarmed of her natural weapons, free argument and debate, errors ceasing to be dangerous when it is permitted freely to contradict them. Be it enacted by general assembly that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinions in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. And though we well know that this assembly elected by the people for the ordinary purposes of legislation only have no power to restrain the acts of succeeding assemblies constituted with powers equal to our own, and that therefore to declare this act irrevocable would be of no effect in law. Yet we are free to declare, and do declare, that the rights hereby asserted are of the natural rights of mankind, and that if any act shall be hereafter passed to repeal the present or to narrow its operation, such an act will be an infringement of natural rights.
Okay, so going back through the statute and picking apart some of my favorite passages in it. So obviously, I love the sentiment, if someone's going to be a theist, that they believe that God, as they understand him or it, made humans free in their thoughts, right? The idea that as Jefferson writes of God, quote, being Lord both of body and mind, yet chose not to propagate it, meaning belief in him, by coercions on either, as was in his almighty power to do, end quote. In other words, if God himself had wanted to forcibly inculcate certain beliefs in people's minds, he does, if he is in fact an all-powerful omniscient God, have the capability to do this, and yet he chose not to do so. Which should tell us something. And then I love the next paragraph where he writes, quote, The impious presumption of legislators and rulers, civil as well as ecclesiastical, who, being themselves but fallible and uninspired men, have assumed dominion over the faith of others, setting up their own opinions and modes of thinking as the only true and infallible, and as such, endeavoring to impose them on others, hath established and maintained false religions over the greatest part of the world through all time. End quote. So, yes, authorities who want to control people's thoughts and beliefs are just themselves imperfect men like the rest of us. And thus, all they're doing is ensconcing their own opinions and preferences and values and beliefs on things into the power of the state and into the force of law. And therefore, by implication, no matter what one's own personal religious beliefs are, presumably, one would think that other beliefs besides one's own must be erroneous to some degree. And therefore, given the fact that historically, most pre-modern regimes have had a state religion to one extent or another, and that most of them are not whatever one might happen to be, that means most governments throughout human history that have had a state religion have been, by definition, forcing a false belief onto everybody. Again, regardless of what your belief is, right? Whether you know, you're a Protestant, a Catholic, a Muslim, whatever, you look back at the grand scope of human history and most pre-modern states had a state religion. And whatever your religion is personally, it wasn't that. And then next is one of my favorite lines in the whole thing. Quote, that to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves is sinful and tyrannical, end quote. Now, obviously, I agree with this in regards to the question of religious beliefs. But how about if we apply the exact same standard to other beliefs as well? Is it wrong to force someone to help pay for the propagation of opinions which that person does not believe in? Is it wrong? Is it, in fact, sinful and tyrannical? Well, if it's sinful and tyrannical to do so in regard to religious beliefs and ideologies, why on earth would it not be equally sinful and tyrannical in regard to beliefs and ideologies that are at least nominally non-religious, like political ideologies, for example? And think about the various institutions that are part of the state or are in some way funded by and or empowered by the state, and that are in part, if not in whole, funded by coerced revenues, in other words, by taxation. Just a few of those that readily occur to my mind, thinking about it, would be educational institutions and media institutions. 
is it sinful and tyrannical to make someone through taxation pay for schools that teach ideas that that person disbelieves? Just as much in terms of secular ideas and beliefs as it would be in religious ones. Is it sinful and tyrannical to force someone through taxation to pay for media institutions such as state-supported TV and radio? If the ideas are not ones that the person being taxed to pay for this believes. In other words, should we see state-funded educational and media institutions as being just as tyrannical and violative of individual rights and freedom of conscience and so forth as a state-supported church? And it's interesting how most mainstream muggles in the modern-day developed world will very quickly reject and condemn the idea of a state-established church, but will not apply the exact same critiques to state-funded educational and media organizations. My next little favorite spot is where he writes, quote, that our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions any more than our opinions in physics or geometry, end quote. This, again, has implications far beyond just the realm of religion. Because if someone's beliefs and opinions on religion should have no bearing on the degree to which they enjoy fundamental rights, then what about their beliefs in regard to a whole host of issues that are not directly religious, such as their beliefs regarding the proper responses to COVID, or their beliefs in regard to any number of controversial political issues? Is it right that some people get some of their fundamental, basic rights nullified or eroded because they are deemed to believe the wrong things and don't stick to the official doctrines. And then I really love the passage where he writes, quote, that it tends only to corrupt the principles of that very religion it is meant to encourage by bribing with the monopoly of worldly honors and emoluments those who will externally profess and conform to it, end quote. And this harkens back to the phrase in the first big paragraph in which he says that these things, quote, tend only to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness, end quote. In other words, again, that people are going to externally pretend to believe in and go along with the state-favored church, either out of fear of some sort of punishment or loss of rights or out of desire to get some sort of reward for doing so, such as money or power or prestige or whatever. In other words, it's going to create a situation in which some significant amount of the people participating in the official church don't really believe it at all, and are just doing it either to avoid punishment or to earn reward. And the point is, that doesn't really fulfill the supposed purpose of religion, which is supposed to be about people having genuine heartfelt faith, at least in the, the Christian tradition, right? Which is obviously where Jefferson is primarily coming from. And then a little ways down, I love the paragraph that reads, quote, that to suffer the civil magistrate to intrude his powers into the field of opinion and to restrain the profession or propagation of principles on supposition of their ill tendency is a dangerous fallacy which at once destroys all religious liberty because he being, of course, the judge of that tendency will make his opinions the rule of judgment and approve or condemn the sentiments of others only as they shall square with or differ from his own. End quote. So, in other words, you put a secular state 
judge in charge of deciding these matters and secular, you know, law enforcement. And they're going to apply these things selectively based on their own beliefs. And you're going to have thought policing that essentially amounts to whoever is in positions of power being able to persecute anybody who doesn't believe what they believe. And you can see this already in some of the Western countries that have already abandoned, if they ever had it in the first place, any idea of an absolute right to freedom of speech and expression, which the U.S. still largely has in regard to the state, at least, although it's creeping in in various places. But, you know, if you look at Canada and most, if not all, the nations of Europe, they have all kinds of laws against certain kinds of speech that are just deemed to be too dangerous or too harmful or too offensive or whatever it is. And essentially, in practice, this means whoever controls the levers of state power gets to criminalize and prosecute people who express differing beliefs. And the very next line Jefferson writes is, quote, that it is time enough for the rightful purposes of civil government for its officers to interfere when principles break out into overt acts against peace and good order, end quote. In other words, if people are advocating and inciting violence or something like this, that's one thing, but simply to go after somebody just because you find the content of their beliefs and what they're saying to be offensive or whatever is not sufficient. And then in the next to last paragraph, we have, quote, And finally, that truth is great and will prevail if left to herself, that she is the proper and sufficient antagonist to error and has nothing to fear from the conflict, unless by human interposition disarmed of her natural weapons, free argument and debate, errors ceasing to be dangerous when it is permitted freely to contradict them, end quote. And this is a wonderful expression in eloquent late 18th century English of the idea that freedom of speech and expression and belief need to be protected, including in the case of people who are wrong. And that the right response to beliefs that you consider wrong or objectionable in some way is not to attempt to silence them, but instead to engage in discourse. Right? The idea that is sometimes summarized with the notion that the right response in a free society to bad speech is better speech. Again, can we apply these same principles to realms outside of the purely theological? And so, in closing, Jefferson acknowledges that this is just a statute, meaning it's not irrevocable, and that potentially future legislatures would have the legal and constitutional right to undo this and reestablish a church if they so chose. So after acknowledging their legal and constitutional right to do this, he basically kind of says, yeah, but you guys are assholes violating natural rights if you ever actually do undo this law and reestablish a state church in Virginia. And this is where he writes, quote, Yet we are free to declare and do declare that the rights hereby asserted are of the natural rights of mankind, and that if any act shall be hereafter passed to repeal the present or to narrow its operation, such an act will be an infringement of natural right. End quote. So he's saying, yes, you can undo this, but just 
laying it out there for posterity. If you do, you are violating people's natural rights. Just saying. So, this act, because it's a long, you know, almost two-page rant, essentially in favor of freedom of thought and belief, had a lot more impact than simply disestablishing Virginia State Church. Now, obviously, and most directly, it influenced the content of the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights, and it also influenced a bunch of other states to follow Virginia's lead and disestablish churches if they had them. But as I think I've alluded to and indicated here, a hell of a lot of the sentiments expressed here have all kinds of implications and applications beyond simply the narrow issue of state churches. Some of these implications, I think, Jefferson and Madison realized even at the time, and others I think they couldn't have. And there were some things you could call contradictory, like, for example, Jefferson was a proponent of public schooling and seems to have genuinely believed that you could have state-run schools without having basically control of people's beliefs and thoughts and ideologies. So I think he had a blind spot there. Perhaps had he lived long enough to see public schools actually get created and operate throughout the country, he might have realized the error on that. But again, think about the implications of applying these same sentiments and arguments to the question of using of tax dollars to fund educational and media institutions, which by their very nature inculcate certain beliefs and opinions. And is that right? You don't have to be an anarchist, I don't think, to say it's not. Because even if you're a believing minarchist that, well, we need to have certain basic protections of persons and property and national defense or whatever, still, I think you could have a Jeffersonian objection to tax money being used to create and run institutions such as schools and media outlets that then inevitably play a role in manipulating and forming people's beliefs about things. And of course, obviously, this has a lot of implications, even though many of the the targets of these criticisms in this case wouldn't be directly state, although some of them are kind of indirectly part of the state, at sort of cancel culture and censorship of controversial opinions and inconvenient facts, and basically all attempts at thought policing that we see going on around us so often today. Just a few more quick points I want to hammer here. One is in light of my recent episode that got a lot of traction, getting back to the concept of civil religion. If we think about ideologies, right, nominally secular ideologies, right, nominally non-theistic, non-supernatural belief systems, I think it's pretty clear that when you see things like coerced tax money being used to fund government-run or government-influenced or affiliated or whatever you want to call it, media and quote-unquote educational institutions, what you essentially have is the propagation of an established civil religion. And so again, think of the implications of applying Jefferson's rant in this bill to instances of established civil religion. And this also calls to mind to me the point made by Murray Rothbard, I believe in Anatomy of the State and or perhaps elsewhere. And some other anarchist or anarchist-leaning thinkers have made similar points to this, where he basically says that in modern states and societies, the intellectuals, quote-unquote, have largely taken the place of 
the established clergy in the medieval and early modern period, in which they control the institutions that have the most power and influence on what people think and what they believe. And that just like the state clergy in the days when church and state were not separated to the degree they are, say, in modern America today, there's this alliance of throne and altar situation. There's this symbiotic relationship in which the state offers the clergy of the civil religion, again, particularly the institutional academics and media figures, the state offers them all sorts of perks and privileges. And then what the state gets in return from having all these people and institutions is that these people and institutions propagate the quote-unquote right beliefs, essentially the established civil religion. So I think that's a useful way to think about these things. So anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this little episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and it's given you some stuff to think about and introduce you to this very interesting law if you've not actually read it before. You know, Thomas Jefferson was a very complicated and contradictory figure. Virtually everybody these days understands he had some real problems when it comes to issues of race and slavery that seem to contradict a lot of his other principles. And I almost feel kind of like I'm going through the motions even pointing this out because it's just so often rehashed and sometimes is used to dismiss everything the guy ever said or thought. And with a little higher degree of subtlety, certainly many of the things he did as president, setting aside the issues of race and slavery, contradicted his own political ideology as well. Most notably, the Louisiana Purchase and the Embargo Act. But that said, the guy was brilliantly right on a bunch of things and ahead of his time in many ways. And when he was at his best, his pen could be very eloquent. And even though it sometimes is a little bit awkward to our eyes and ears today, I really do love that late 18th, early 19th century English. And I think Jefferson was clearly a master of it. Thomas Jefferson served two terms as President of the United States. Probably to most, if not all, other men who have held that office, that office is considered by them to be the highlight of their life and career. But Jefferson was one of a handful of guys who didn't feel that way. He thought his most important accomplishments were other things. So much so that before he died, he specified that he didn't want any mention of being president on his tombstone. Instead, his tombstone lists three other accomplishments of which he was more proud. His grave marker reads, Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. Those were the things, towards the end of his life, of which he was the most proud. So I hope you've enjoyed this fun-sized dose of dangerous history. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return 
is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.